When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. An appeals court prepares to decide what Donald Trump can say about the federal case against him, as the Republican Party lets him say whatever he wants, no matter how dangerous it gets. I'll talk to Congressman Dan Goldman about all of it and how Trump's violent language is trickling down to the halls of Congress. Plus, a judge in Colorado lets the former president stay on the ballot, but rules that he did incite the insurrection on January 6th. The law firm of Weissman and Katiel is here to tell us what that means and what happens next. Also today, breaking news out of the Middle East. Sources telling NBC News that Israel and Hamas are closing in on a deal to release some of the hostages in exchange for a pause in fighting. And later, my wide-ranging conversation with Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. We talk about Trump's terrifying plans if he takes back the White House and how Democrats can beat him in 2024. So right now, the debate over Donald Trump's incredibly dangerous rhetoric is not just playing out in the court of public opinion, though we see it there, of course. It's also playing out in a court of law. Tomorrow morning, an appeals court here in Washington, D.C., will hear arguments about what Trump can and cannot say about the federal trial over his efforts to overturn an election. Remember, a gag order in that case was imposed, then paused, then reinstated, then suspended. It's been a lot to keep up with. So yes, our court system is clearly grappling with the challenges of trying a former president and current candidate turned criminal defendant. We'll talk about what happens during this appeals court hearing on our show tomorrow night. But as we saw in Trump's civil fraud, civil fraud trial in New York, Trump is intent on testing the limits of the rule of law, the gag order, whether a gag order is in place or no gag order is in place. When an order was in fact in New York, he violated it and was found fined thousands of dollars, twice. When it was lifted, the ink had barely dried before he was back at it, posting a message on Truth Social, calling a law clerk politically biased and out of control. See, in Trump's eyes, he is bigger than the procedures of the court. He is outside the rule of law. And in his eyes, his political supporters, the MAGA base, want to hear him attack the legal system. That's why he does it. He will push the envelope as far as he is allowed to go, and often even farther. And as we watch our courts struggle to contain him, and they're having a hard time, it is becoming increasingly clear that his party, the Republican Party, might be the only institution that can actually hold him accountable. But so far, they're refusing to step up. They've tolerated Trump echoing the language of genocidal dictators, routinely dehumanizing his political opponents, speaking not just of beating his enemies at the ballot box, but extinguishing them altogether. They've tolerated the dark vision for America that Trump is plotting for a second term, complete with sweeping raids, sprawling detention camps, and mass deportation for immigrants, with a reinstated Muslim ban and a push to unleash troops on protesters. Just last night, Trump wrote on True Social that 2024 is our final battle. We will finish the job once and for all. See, he's casting this not as an election, but as a battle. Every Republican who doesn't speak out against that kind of thing is complicit. But we're also at a point where the party isn't just tolerating Donald Trump. They are following his lead in word 
and also in action. Maybe that has something to do with his view of what the MAGA base wants, a base many Republicans are scared of losing or even just scared of in general. His violent rhetoric has trickled down to Congress, where literal fighting erupted this week. I mean, if the head of the party is spouting violent rhetoric any chance he gets, I guess it's not really surprising that brawls are on the verge of breaking out in the halls of Capitol. I mean, it has kind of a connection there. This week, in the span of one day, I'm talking about one single day here, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was accused of elbowing Tennessee Representative Tim Burchett in the kidneys. A fistfight nearly broke out in the middle of a Senate hearing when Senator Mark Wayne Mullen stood up from his chair to confront the president of the Teamsters Union. I'm not sure why that was necessary. And the chairman of the House Oversight Committee screamed at another representative in another hearing, calling him a smurf. I don't know about that use of word, but here we go. In fact, Republicans' tempers flared so dramatically and so publicly that Speaker Mike Johnson told them to take Thanksgiving to cool off. But let's face it, we all kind of know they won't. Because the fact is, the fish rots from the head. It always does. And Donald Trump remains the de facto head of the GOP. Now, none of this behavior should come as a surprise, given Trump's role in unleashing a violent mob on the Capitol on January 6th. The problem is, rank-and-file Republicans in Congress seemingly refuse to learn from that history even when it once put their lives in jeopardy. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I wanted to just to start with what's been happening in the House. I mean, you are relatively new to being a member, less than a year here, but you've been around members for a long time. When, as you observe it and when you speak with your veteran colleagues, have you noticed a shift in Congress toward more threats and insults, even amongst each other? Well, certainly this Republican Party uh, is demonstrating its uh, complete dysfunction that's now uh, fallen into actual violence. Uh, we, we have been uh, in D.C. for 10 straight weeks, which is much longer than usual. But I think it's more a reflection of the fact that the House Republicans in particular cannot get anything done. Not only are they not working with Democrats, they can't even resolve among the, themselves how they want to go forward. And so tensions are incredibly high. They have a failed impeachment inquiry going on. They can't pass any legislation. They end up doing what the Democrats want, because that's the only thing they can get through. And then there's a backlash from the far right. And so not only do you have WWE in one day in uh, Congress this week, but you also had a Republican member of the, of the House go to the floor and demand that his leadership tell him one single thing that the Republicans have gotten done this year that he can campaign on, because there is nothing. So this is really a civil war within the Republican Party, uh, and mm. it's a shame for the American people, because uh, we're ready to work. We're ready to get stuff done for the American people. I want to also turn to Trump, of course, and just some of what the reporting has been around uh, some of his conversations, also as we anticipate a year full of trials next year. I want to take a listen to part of a conversation that he had with uh, ABC's Jonathan Carl about January 6th and get your thoughts on the other end. You told them you were going to go up to the Capitol, were you just— I was, no, I was going to, and the Secret Service said, you can't. And then by the time I would have, and then when I got back, I saw I wanted to go back. I was thinking about going back during the problem to stop the problem, doing it myself. Secret Service didn't like that idea too much. So, so what— and I could so have done that. And you know what? I would have been very well received. 
So there's been so much speculation, contemplation, discussion of what Trump wanted to do, what he knew or didn't know. I mean, do you think, as a prosecutor, former <clears throat> prosecutor, this is something that could be useful in the case against Trump? How will it be used? Yeah, well, I mean, look, he says uh, I would be well-received, because he knows that the people who were there are his supporters, who he riled up and incited to invade and riot at the Capitol and try to disrupt the proper counting of the Electoral College votes. So every time he talks, he's uh, putting himself into a bigger criminal hole. Uh, but the, but his, that's not his objective. His objective mm. is purely political at this point. Uh, politics don't work in a courtroom, as I think he's finding out in the mm. New York Attorney General case in New York, a civil case, and, and that's going to continue in his criminal trials. But his rhetoric is really getting dangerous, more and more dangerous. And we saw what happened on January 6th when he uses inflammatory rhetoric now, and his recent True Social post uh, is incredibly, incredibly scary for anyone uh, that might be trying to op work in government. And um, it is just uh, unquestionable questionable at this point that that man cannot see public office again. He is not only unfit, he is destructive to our democracy, uh, and he has to be—he uh, has to be eliminated. There are several hearings going on right now uh, and back and forth over gag orders in various cases. None of it seems to be working. What do you think—what are the consequences that might work in having Trump dial back his language, or would anything work? Well, I've noted that the gag orders are very specific to the case that they relate to. It is not of trying to infringe on his ability to campaign or make political speech. It's really just trying to stop him from threatening witnesses, prosecutors, and judges, which, of course, is out of bounds. Uh, and if he continues to do that, there will be a ratchet up of penalties. And it may start with fines, but it could ultimately end up with jail time. Um, and at some point, you know, Donald Trump believes he is above the law, and he is going to meet the law head first. I want to get your reaction to some new reporting from NBC overnight that U.S., Israel uh, and Hamas negotiators are closing in on a deal to release some of the hostages in exchange for a pause in the fighting. And this morning on Meet the Press, uh, Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer did confirm that they are discussing more than a dozen hostages, so a larger number than we've seen to date. He could not confirm how many were Americans and also made clear nothing is agreed, of course, until everything is agreed, which is always the case in negotiations. But I wanted to get your reaction to the possibility of this deal, which would also include a temporary uh, cease of hostilities. Well, this is what we all should be focusing on right now, is the release of the 240 hostages that includes 33 children and babies that who have been held for 43 days in captivity by Hamas. That should be the focus of the entire international community right now. It is abhorrent. It is uh, obviously illegal, uh, but, and it is treacherous. And the fact that there is a focus on uh, other things related to what's going on and not a real keen focus on releasing those hostages so that we can have a pause, so that we can get the aid to the innocent Palestinian civilians who so desperately need it, 
Um, I am glad that we are getting close to it, but I hope it's more than 12 because we've got 33 children, many, many more innocent women um, and elderly. Uh, the innocent civilians must be released, and everyone in the international community must be putting pressure on Hamas, on Qatar, on Iran, on Egypt to then apply pressure to, uh, on Hamas to release those hostages. U.N. Senator Cory Booker, I, I should know you were both in Israel on the day of the October 7th attack, sent a letter to President Biden asking him to keep pressing Israel to crack down on violence by Israeli settlers in the West Bank. This is something there hasn't been as much focus on in, as until recently. Yesterday, Biden said the U.S. is prepared to impose sanctions on Israeli settlers involved in the attacks there. Is that enough? And do you think this signals a shift in how the administration kind of views that aggression? Yes, I think that's a significant step. Uh, I was very happy to see that the president made that public. Uh, Israel cannot afford to um, have any vigilante justice in the West Bank to incite, um, incite volatility there, incite violence there. Um, both in terms of the near term, because the focus must be on Hamas in Gaza and nowhere else, and we, Israel must and the U.S. must do everything possible to stave off a multi-front war, but also in terms of a long-term peace process. Um, whatever Israel does in the West Bank is going to have an impact on how the international community views Israel as a viable partner in a two-state solution, which may be the silver lining of this entire dreadful uh, situation over there is that there may be the foundation for a two-state solution. But we're going to need the entire international community, including the Arab League, including Gulf states, to both invest political capital and financial capital into a rebuilding of Gaza and a remaking of the Middle East in order to have that two-state solution. And it is essential that Israel take whatever necessary steps that they can to preserve that possibility. So would you be open to any conditioning of aid, Congressman, from the United States? No, there should never be conditioning of aid uh, to Israel. Uh, we, Israel is a our, our perhaps best partner, both uh, militarily, uh, democratically, diplomatically. We share a tremendous amount of information. Uh, there is a, a very close relationship. And Israel is a democracy that abides by the rule of law. Our support for Israel must be unconditional. And we, we should never put uh, actual specific conditions on any aid that goes there. We should, however, as we are doing, use our relationship with Israel to press them to do the necessary things uh, for the good of not only Israel, but also the broader Middle East and, and the global community in general. And I think that's what we're seeing President Biden do. He is showing excellent and correct start support for Israel as it fights uh, a brutal terrorist regime that is solely uh, focused on eliminating Israel. Uh, Israel is a, de a democracy, and they, are, they abide by the rule of law, and they must abide by the rule of law. And so there's a diplomatic channel that we will use with Israel to make sure that we're all on the same pa page, but we should not ever be conditioning aid to Israel. Congressman Dan Goldman, thank you so much for your time today. Hope you have a happy Thanksgiving with your family. You too. Thank you. Coming up, a judge in Colorado says Donald Trump can stay on the ballot. 
But that was not the headline I'm taking away from that ruling. Andrew Weissman and Neil Katziel are standing by to break it all down and to preview tomorrow's high-stakes hearing on Trump's gag order. We're just getting started this hour, and we'll be right back. Okay, I want to show you some headlines after a judge in Colorado ruled late Friday that Donald Trump will remain on the primary ballot there. Here they are. It all looks very positive for him, right? It looks like a win for the former president at first glance. But those headlines do not tell the full story. Because while the judge ruled he can stay on the ballot, she also said this, quote, Trump acted with the specific intent to incite political violence and direct it at the Capitol with the purpose of disrupting the electoral certification. And the court finds that petitioners have established that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6, 2021. So just to pause on that for one second, a judge ruled that a former president engaged in an insurrection against the United States. Just another Friday night in 2023. Here we go. So why is he still on the ballot? I mean, that's the first question I had. Well, it all came down to a very specific part of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that lists off who would be disqualified from holding public office again after previously taking an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. The judge ruled that because that section does not specifically name the presidential oath or the presidency, that presidents are therefore exempt. So it kind of seems like Trump was let off the hook because of a technicality in the fine print. That's not legal analysis, although I have some of the best lawyers to do that. But this case will be appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court, but the United States Supreme Court will likely have the final say in what happens here. Joining me now is our in-house law firm. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Neil Katiel is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. So, Andrew... You, we always know what you think because you are very prolific on Twitter. But I wanted to ask you, last night at a rally, Donald Trump basically said this is a gigantic victory, essentially, a court victory for him. What did you think when you read that ruling? Well, that's a lot like his saying that after an impeachment, he was you know, exonerated. Exonerated, right. The, the Mueller report exonerated yes. him. I mean, so, look, that's his spin. I do think there's a factual component to this ruling and a legal component. Yeah. It's great that you're focusing on the sort of misleading headlines. The factual component is not just the bottom line that you read where the judge says, I find mm -hmm. that he incited, but she goes through a litany of his history of violent rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And let me just give you one example from the ellipse, which I think many people had not focused on, was the judge said, this is from Donald Trump's exact words, when you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. Mm. And then he talked about fighting over and over and over again. I mean, it, so the, that was the very explicit finding with enormous support. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sure Neil's going to talk a lot about the legal ruling. But just here's my lay, non-legal view. <laughs> the idea that people passed this part of the Constitution saying, if you engage in insurrection, you cannot hold any office Accept the presidency yeah. seems crazy. It doesn't make sense at all. That, I is, mean, that is a lay legal view-ish. Yes, and a legal exactly. View. <laughs> so, so, Neil, I think one of the big questions here is kind of what happens from here. A lot of the reporting suggests it could go to the Colorado Supreme Court next, and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. You're very familiar with these processes. Walk us through kind of what could happen from here. 
Yeah, so I, I do uh, argue appeals for a living, and I live part of the year in Colorado, so I'm very familiar with the Colorado Supreme Court. Mm. And, you know, I think, Andrew, and you have got it exactly right. If I were to put the headline uh, on Friday night as an appeals lawyer, it would be, this is the very worst decision Donald Trump could get from the trial court, because it's going to go on appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court, perhaps the U.S. Supreme Court, and there Trump is going to face extreme headwinds. And the reason for that is, the factual find there's two parts, as Andrew says, there's the mm -hmm. factual finding that the judge said, which is Trump committed insurrection. And then there's a legal part that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the office of the presidency. And on appeals, Jen, the factual findings get massive deference by the appeals court. It's almost impossible to overturn a trial judge's factual finding. You can't overturn the legal findings because that's a basically a fresh look at the legal mm -hmm. thing. And here this judge factually made devastating findings against Trump and then looked at this legal technicality, which was, well, the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the office of the president, which is so weak, even the judge themselves admitted that this is, would be preposterous. And the reason for that is that there are other parts of the Constitution that say that the president is an office holder of the United States, which is kind of obvious, and the text and the part you didn't bold um, when you flashed the 14th Amendment says it applies to, quote, any office, civil or military, under the United States, as long as you've taken an oath. And of course, the president does take an oath. And it would be an insane reading otherwise. It would mean Jefferson Davis or Robert E. Lee mm. could have run for the presidency in 1868. That cannot possibly be the law. And I don't think that it will command a majority of the Colorado Supreme Court or certainly the United States Supreme Court. So you've argued a lot of cases before the Supreme Court. Would you take this case? Hell yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready and willing to go. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Okay, we got to move on to others. So many li much legal news happening. So tomorrow, uh, Andrew, there is an appeals court judge uh, who temporarily paused the gag order that barred Trump from commenting about court staff involved in the civil fraud trial. On Thursday, tomorrow, there's a three-judge panel uh, at, in front of the U.S. Court of Appeals. What are you looking for? What should we be watching for? This relates so much to what we have just been talking about and also to your interview with Congressman Goldman, which is violence. And again, I know that you're sitting there going, well, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a layperson. But I think that will be what the panel will be focused on because they're not divorced. Rhetoric. Exactly. I mean, the, and the history of violence and what happened just this week in Congress, um, his picture with um, a baseball bat with Alvin Bragg, his discussion of Mark Milley, his belittling an attack on an 82-year-old mm -hmm. man with a hammer that was almost fatal because he's the husband of a, a political enemy um, or perceived, perceived political enemy. Um, all of that, to me, is going to feed into the argument and the idea that you're going to say, and sort of ignore the reality mm -hmm. that this is a candidate who's embracing violence, and what judge wants to have on their conscience that they're going to have allowed this to happen? Because as sure as we're sitting here, um, you know, this is going to repeat. There is a woman currently criminally charged mm -hmm. for threatening to kill the district judge mm -hmm. on this case. Um, so this is really a refutation of Donald Trump's lawyers' argument that this is just speculative. That's what they're arguing, um, and it's just not the case. It is. It, Neil, very quickly, in our remaining seconds, what do you think the headline is going to be out of tomorrow, if you were to guess? 
These are three really respected judges. They've all worked at the Justice Department. I suspect that they will ask really tough questions of Trump because he is dangerous and he's generated the very best evidence against his position on the gag order. So I think the headlines tomorrow will read judge very skeptical, judge is very skeptical of Donald Trump's appeal. Well, we will be watching it. We'll be talking about it tomorrow night. Andrew Weissman and Neil Katiel, thank you so much as always. Coming up as we track some breaking news on a potential deal between Israel and Hamas on the release of hostages, I'll offer some perspective on what's happening inside the White House at moments like this. And later, my conversation with Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, I'll ask him if more Democrats should be speaking out about the danger posed by Donald Trump. We're back after a quick break. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, Practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. We're following a potential breakthrough in the war between Israel and Hamas. Negotiators are closing in on a deal that would release some of the hostages in exchange for a pause in fighting. Sources say that the deal is close, but has not been finalized yet. Today on Meet the Press, my colleague Kristen Welker spoke to Dep Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer about where negotiations stand. Some of the outstanding areas of disagreement uh, in, in a very complicated, very sensitive uh, negotiation have been narrowed, uh, that I believe we are closer than we have been in, in quite some time, uh, maybe closer than we have been since the beginning of this process uh, to getting this deal done. But at this point, uh, we really need to adhere to the mantra that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Uh, you know, sensitive negotiations like this can fall apart at the last minute. Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. What John Finer is telling us there is that everything, it's, he's basically saying everything he can without going too far and potentially complicating what is a very delicate negotiation. So why can't the White House say more in this moment? Well, I've lived through a lot of these, and typically the final stages of hostage deals hang by a thread. In this case, U.S. and Israeli officials have been discussing a deal for weeks now with the Qataris. Qatar's prime minister said today that all that remains are very minor details, and that sounds promising. And it is, but in my experience, those minor details can be the difference between a deal and no deal. So if you're sitting inside the White House right now, you are navigating some massive challenges. Feiner says that considerably more than a dozen hostages are being considered for release. But the question is, how many and how many will be left behind? We just don't know yet. And Feiner also acknowledged that the U.S. does not have good intel on the status of those that remain. Apart from the hostage deal, the national security team also has their eyes on the rising violence in the West Bank, something we discussed with Dan Goldman, which has now reportedly prompted an internal policy process to consider visa bans and sanctions for Israeli settlers. And finally, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza has reached a breaking point. Take, for instance, the situation at Gaza's largest hospital over the last several days. 
Israeli forces stormed El Shiva Hospital, searching for evidence of a key Hamas command center. But so far, they've come up short. And the World Health Organization now describes that hospital as a death zone. They found 80 bodies in a mass grave and several patients who had died as a result of medical services shutting down. So in the pause in the fighting would allow a much needed influx of medical aid. That's a great thing. And of course, the release of any hostages would be incredible news. But if you're sitting in the White House right now and you're looking to resolve this conflict, there are still larger challenges ahead. Up next, what does one of the most prominent Jewish lawmakers in the country think about Donald Trump echoing the words of Hitler? You'll find out in my wide-ranging interview with Governor J.B. Pritzker. And later, Botox, a holiday in the Hamptons, and a Hermes shopping spree. You might think I'm describing weekend with a real housewife, but those are just a few items in a scathing house ethics report on George Santos. We've got a deep dive coming up in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Today, Donald Trump is headed to the southern border with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, where Abbott is expected to endorse him. It's an image that should feel unsettling, given what we're learning about his plans for mass deportation and giant camps for those waiting to be expelled. Of course, that's not to say nothing of his rhetoric, which includes talk of immigrants poisoning the blood of the country and echoes the language of Nazis. And it's all happening in a climate where anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise across the country as the war between Israel and Hamas rages on. This moment demands leaders from both parties speak out forcefully. And while we're waiting on more Republicans to speak up, Democrats are not holding back, including one of the most prominent Jewish politicians in the United States, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. I sat down with him this week in Chicago to talk about what we're seeing and hearing from Donald Trump right now and how Democrats can make the case against him. Donald Trump's team have put out some details of how he sees immigration, if that's a way to describe it, which includes his threat to round up undocumented immigrants across the country, create camps, large deport numbers of deportations. Uh, the migrant crisis, though, is front and center for a lot of people in this country, on the border, but also states like Illinois. Are you worried that his talk-tough approach is going to be appealing to some people in the country? Jen, you know, I uh, led the building of a Holocaust museum. Uh, the rhetoric that's being used by Donald Trump, the rhetoric that's being used by some of the MAGA extremists, is rhetoric that was used in the 1930s in Germany. Mm -hmm. I, I am very concerned about the direction of the country if we see policies like what Donald Trump is espousing uh, come to light for our country. I think you're referencing, in part, uh, he used the word uh, vermin uh, just recently to describe who he was targeting. Uh, as one of the leading Jewish governors in the country, I mean, what did you think when you heard that? Well, it's just one in a long series of remarks, words that Donald Trump has used that are unfortunately reminiscent of, you know, the past. Mm. Let me just be clear. In Germany in the 1930s, people that uh, they didn't want to have power, people that they wanted to um, separate and segregate, they began calling them immigrants. Mm -hmm. Even people who were had been in Germany for generations, uh, Jews who were doctors, lawyers in uh, government at the time, became known as immigrants even though they were German. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a way to begin to segregate people 
and then eventually, at least what happened in Germany is that they turned it into a way to almost dehumanize. And then they did, in fact, dehumanize and kill people. I don't know where it's going uh, with Donald Trump. What I can tell you is the things that he talks about are frightening to those of us who know the history of Europe in the 1930s and 40s. And I, I'm deeply concerned about his um, predilection for revenge and what that will mean for you know, groups of people that didn't support him uh, in the 2024 election if, in fact, he gets elected. He has, to your point, talked about political targeting, about going after his enemies. Do you think people are talking about that enough, other Democratic leaders? No. And I repeat it wherever I go, that uh, Donald Trump is dangerous for our democracy. He's dangerous for uh, specific minority groups in the United States. Uh, and I think that, you know, for those of us who have a platform to call it out, it is a requirement, in my view, for all of us to call it out, not just Democrats, by the way, Republicans too. Do you expect they will speak out? I hope they will. I know there are people who are afraid. Uh, and that's exactly what Donald Trump hopes, is that people will be too afraid to speak out. I'm not. Uh, Josh Shapiro is not. Uh, many other Democrats, uh, whether you're Jewish or, or another minority group in the United States, um, are not. But there are Republicans that need to stand up and call it out, and I'd like to see that sooner rather than later. Just after the war began, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was, of course, killed in your state, and you've been very vocal about this, by a man who allegedly cited the terror attack in Israel as his motive. You obviously condemned it. You've condemned it many times. But how worried are you about the overall rise in hate speech and the potential for violent actions as a result? I'm deeply concerned about the rise of hate in the United States, and especially, of course, here in Illinois. I worry about it on our college campuses. We've seen protests, and I think it's everybody's right to express themselves. What I don't want is protests and counter-protests encountering each other, mm -hmm. uh, and that turning into violence. That concerns me greatly. Uh, Wadia Al-Fayoumi, the six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, I mean, there is a completely innocent young child mm -hmm. who doesn't know anything about conflicts happening thousands of miles away, who's just living his life. And he's attacked by an extremist here in the United States. It's just something that none of us should even fathom. And yet it happened. And it happened um, in the wake of this uh, war that's happening overseas. And this young boy killed, murdered, because someone had been radicalized by right-wing radio and right-wing television. That's something we all need to pay attention to. There's obviously been some polls that have made a lot of Democrats freak out a bit lately, <laughs> as of late, uh, and I think that's safe to say. Uh, you've said that the choice hasn't been crystallized yet, I'm paraphrasing for you, of course. What do you think is the most important crystallization of that choice? Well, you know, I, I don't think yet people have really put these two next to each other and evaluated 
what the philosophies and agendas are of these two people. Mm -hmm. Look, you still have a Republican primary going on, even if people are saying that Donald Trump will win. There are debates going on. You're hearing from other characters on the Republican side. It's a jumble uh, for voters who are just trying to get through the day, pay their bills, go to work, take care of their families. And people don't really focus until, let's face it, after the conventions. Mm -hmm. And so it's just in those final couple of months, right, from July all the way through November, that this needs to be brought home to people. So when that happens, that crystallization, I think, will occur in people's minds, and people will see that the democracy that they believe in, the country that they owe their allegiance to, the, the patriots out there, will see that the best thing for America is to put aside the authoritarian Donald Trump and vote for the empathetic, uh, genuinely democratic, uh, and you know, believer in protecting people's rights in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Senator Joe Manchin has announced he's not running for Senate again. Uh, he's also said he doesn't think that Biden-Harris is the best, strongest ticket. That's a bit of a paraphrase. You've been a strong supporter of the president, but what do you think about that? I am concerned. I think third-party uh, candidates running for president have had an effect on prior number of elections for president. But I will also tell you that Joe Biden is somebody that, that compared to these other candidates is head and shoulders above. And I do believe that people will see that Donald Trump is the anti-democratic authoritarian candidate that is bad for America. Thank you to Governor Pritzker for sitting down with me in Chicago. And we're going to put up my entire conversation with the governor on MSNBC.com. Coming up, Congressman George Santos is feeling new pressure from Republicans who are showing us they can draw lines in the sand. They're able to do it, at least from members of the party not named Donald Trump. That's coming up next. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. So believe it or not, Republicans might actually hold one of their own accountable. I know we've been waiting for this for a long time. This week, Congressman George Santos started feeling new pressure from within the party to resign after the House Ethics Committee released a damning report on his conduct. The report found substantial evidence that Santos broke multiple federal laws. The Republican chairman of that committee has already filed his own resolution to expel Santos. And a wave of Republicans previously against expulsion are now coming out publicly to say that he should either resign or they will boot him themselves from the chamber. When you pour through the details of this report, and believe me, we did, many people did, it is no wonder that Republicans are saying that Santos has to go. 
I mean, to start with, he lied about his personal finances to constituents, that's a big no-no, to campaign supporters, to staff, and on his disclosure forms. He falsified a list of campaign donors to the FEC, and he used campaign funds to pay down his own credit card debt for, wait for it, shopping sprees at luxury stores and for payments to the adult content site OnlyFans. You cannot make it up sometimes. And trust me, that is just a sampling of what the report found. So yeah, Republicans are showing us they do have the ability to call out one of their own. Good for them. Congresswoman Ashley Hinson of Iowa said the conduct was illegal and unacceptable and Americans deserve better from their representatives. All right, Congresswoman, that's true. Congressman, Congressman Greg Murphy of North Carolina said that Santos's actions were reprehensible and he was not worthy of being a member of Congress. Also true there, Congressman Murphy. And even the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, isn't providing Santos any cover. He said the report was very troubling, also very true, and urged lawmakers to consider the best interests of the institution. It's a good thing that lots of Republicans won't tolerate this kind of behavior anymore. It's, we've been waiting. And yet, and yet, you knew there was going to be a yet in here. Lots of Republicans have been much less vocal about the mountain of allegations and evidence against their own party's leader, Donald Trump. A guy who, of course, has been impeached twice, was referred to the Justice Department for criminal charges by a bipartisan select committee, has been found liable in civil trials, both for fraud and sexual abuse, and is currently facing 91 felony counts across four indictments in four separate jurisdictions. I mean, call me crazy, but all of that, sexual abuse, hoarding classified documents, trying to end American democracy, is actually much worse than the allegations against George Santos. Much, much worse. As crazy as those allegations are, too. But I'm sure those Republican lawmakers I just mentioned have spoken up just as strongly about Trump, right? Well, after Trump's third indictment, Congresswoman Hinson, the same one we talked about earlier, tweeted, another Biden scandal, another Trump indictment, just like clockwork. Congressman Greg Murphy, the same guy we just talked about, called Trump's Manhattan indictment, quote, just another milestone in how far Democrats will go. And then, of course, there's the ever-pious new Speaker of the House, who just this week endorsed Donald Trump for president. I have endorsed him wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm all in for President Trump. I, okay, yeah, I know, good. I all expect right. he'll be our nominee. Yeah, and, and he's going to win it, and we have to make Biden a one-term president. We have to do that. So just to summarize here, the pious speaker, Mike Johnson, is very troubled by paying for OnlyFans with the campaign funds, but paying hush money to a porn star, obstructing investigations, and inciting a violent attack on the Capitol, he's all in for. This is all a reminder. Republicans are willing to draw lines, just not when it comes to Donald Trump. We're coming right back after a very quick break. Stay with us. A quick programming note before we go today, be sure to tune in here tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern to check out a new MSNBC Films documentary called Periodical. It's an honest look at menstruation and menopause and an effort to smash historical stigmas. That documentary is also streaming on Peacock. And I will be back here tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. We have a big show planned. I'll talk to Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, who was just reelected to a second term. 
I have lots to talk to him about as we look ahead to 2024. And also I'll be talking with former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who will join me here in Washington as well. I'll have her react to brand new audio of Donald Trump that confirms what she has claimed all along. Trump wanted to go to the Capitol as the insurrection was unfolding on January 6th. That's all coming up tomorrow night at 8 p.m. For now, stay right where you are because there's much more news coming up on MSNBC. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.